0: You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Goldbeek.
1: Welcome back to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by my other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. And we're excited and honored to be joined today by historian and social ethicist, Dr. Gary Dorian. Um, Dr. Dorian is the Reinhold Niebuhr Professor of Social Ethics at the Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. He is also Professor of Religion at Columbia University. Dr. Dorian, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, Clifton, it's wonderful to see you again after all these years. And I'm it's grateful good. to be with you and Zach and Aaron. It is great to see you too. And now for our listeners, I had Dr. Dorian as a professor when I was at Union. He was actually the main guy I was there to, to study. I was there. I, I was really interested in, in Niebuhr and Tillich and all those guys. Um, and I had him. And to Dr. Dorian, I here's kind of a personal story. I had read a couple of your books before going to union and I was so excited about meeting you. I actually emailed you before I got there and tried setting up a time to meet you before class started, but alas, you happened to be out of town. So we couldn't do it. And I tried finding that email before today to spring it on you, but I couldn't find it. But, um, as I was preparing for my thesis, then later that year, I was starting to think about, you know, what I would be writing on, totally wanting to have you as my reader uh, because I was writing on Niebuhr. And I found out and it crushed me that you would be on sabbatical my second and final year at Union. Absolutely crushing. (laughs) Well, you know, that was the first sabbatical
2: I ever had in my career. 18 years at Kalamazoo College, zero sabbaticals and went year round. So that one that you ran into, I'm a little bit overdue for a sabbatical.
1: But yeah. Well deserved. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't feel so bad now because you definitely yeah. needed it. Well, that's good. So I did get to take a couple of classes with you, classes that uh, really cemented my passion for Niebuhr and the history of American liberalism. And I'm very excited to have you on our show uh, to finally, you know, personally talk shop about Niebuhr a little bit. Now, the way this is going to work, we've all read some works by you on Niebuhr, and we've just prepared some questions that we want to ask you, and I'll, I'll go ahead and get us started off. I'll get the ball rolling, and then we'll go Zach, and then Aaron, and then just keep it going uh, uh, until it's time to, to close it up. So first question. It's a softball, Dr. Dorian. What is your favorite book by Reinhold Niebuhr, and why?
2: Mm, that's a good one. Uh yes of course favorite and best are different questions
1: <laughs> that's true well you can answer both of them
2: and um then there's always this business about people who read a lot of Niebuhr and have some kind of investment in him. we all have some sort of notion about when was Niebuhr at his best right
1: yeah that's true uh,
2: and usually yeah. that's some kind of clue to you know what what it is that we're getting out of Niebuhr, and that is the, the one we like the most since of course he changed his politics every 10 years. Uh, and it changed his, his theology pretty radically two or three times too. Um, so you have all those kinds of things um, to negotiate. And I suppose this is, um, this is one of those uh, one of those cases where even to answer this gets into some of that, how, how do you read them and which parts of them do you like more and so on. Um, certainly, I do think that theologically, on the theological side, Nature and Destiny is the mature Niebuhr, and that's really sort of Niebuhr at his best. He has finally, finally pulled together uh, these fragments of things that he's stewing over and even trying things out all through the 1930s. By the time he wrote Nature and Destiny, um, he has pulled together the sort of theological framework and vision that really is Niebuhr. That is true, you know, I think Niebuhr at his best and just, just Niebuhr himself. Um, and that j- then just lives off of then for the rest of his career theologically. Uh, on the other side of his work, that's socioethical political dance, yeah. which is, you know, a zig and zag. Um, I would go, you know, about four years beyond. Um, <laughs> Children of Light and Children of Darkness. Well, I think there are all manner of things that are not good in that book. Um, that's still, to me, certainly that's still Niebuhr at his best. Uh, certain things are still there that later he's going to let go of, um, but are still there in 44. And it's the one time he did try to just develop a political philosophy uh, where, you know, again, a similar kind of thing where there's a, there's a kind of synthetic effort going on um, in that book. It's not just a collection of pieces or hit pieces or whatever. It's, um, there's an attempt at some kind of synthetic self presentation about how it all comes together for him on that side of his work. Um, And so for me, yes, um, that that would be the answer uh, to this question, though, without question, the book that has more impact, uh, the one that everybody has to deal with one way or another is neither of those two. It's it's Moral Man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a little a tiny bit of a follow up and then we'll go to Zach's question about Mm -hmm. Children of Light, Children of Darkness. Okay, so Niebuhr is, is ultimately asking the question, Children of light have something to learn from the children of darkness. Right. What what do we have to learn today? Or maybe I'll I'll pose it this way. This maybe changes it up a little bit, but what do Democrats have to learn from Trumpism?
2: Well, um, I mean, I came, I grew up in a poor trailer park. Um lower class, not even sort of on the edge, a lot of the oh, edge of working class um, background. So um, to, to grow up in that sort of context where over time in the course of my lifetime, the thought of voting for the Democrat, that is the party of black people and feminists and highly educated people is just a non-starter. I mean, it's just not really even considered. Um, because the issues have not really become the issue any longer. The issue is the, the, the contempt that you feel is being, being communicated to you, pervaded to you by this democratic party that just seems to you like an elite institution. I mean, that, that aspect, it's very hard for people who are, who've not grown up in a context like that, who just watch MSNBC and CNN and have a certain kind of worldview. Um, that makes no contact at all with the other America that feels denigrated by virt- by most highly educated people um, and people who have opinions about certain cultural issues that just aren't them at all. And that and 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 of course, all uh, thrown into all of this is just this this powerful fear of being replaced that is just palpable um, at Trump rallies. Um, you know niebuhr does of course have a um he's mindful about his own kind of humble you know, beginnings and he's he's oh he's always got radar for the the prob the moral problems of egotism and will to power and pride um so the many different ways that pride can manifest itself and be and be alienating um and just ugly um that's something he's not only got radar for, it, he's, he's aware, he's self-aware that he's got to struggle with it himself. So it's not, you know, it does start yeah. there. It's not like he doesn't, doesn't know it's a problem. And I'd say the most problematic things as with regard to neighbor have to do with that very thing that he didn't work out. Um, but nonetheless, he is, he has got such, um, radar, um, for it that, um, he's certainly helpful for that. And it just, um, how is pride and will to power manifesting itself, and, uh, and mm-hmm. a certain kind of sinfulness that's just not even aware of itself, because it's it's very hard to self-criticize, it's hard to see yourself as yeah. others might see. You're you're a willful pride uh, acting itself out in your politics, or your religion, or your pride in your education, or your advancement, uh, and so on. And one reason he's so good at that is that you know he knows he's got his own his, his own story with that. Yeah. Uh, and becoming famous. And yeah. In fact, he was lousy at writing about himself. He is, in fact, always writing about himself, but never directly <laughs> that he cannot do. He tried it a couple of times. Miserable failure. Just can't really put himself front and center.
1: Well, that was something I couldn't help but notice in the way that you're setting up Niebuhr in uh, making of, of American liberal theology is you're kind of setting him up as a man between worlds. And, you know, you have the, the German and English speaking world, you have, you know, the parochial church life and, you know, his struggles at Yale. And he's just never comfortable wherever he is. And uh, and when you're uncomfortable like that, you can never completely release yourself from either world either. Um, and kind of the the follies and perhaps strengths of of both of those worlds. Yeah. Good answer.
2: I think that's exactly right, Cliff. I mean, he grows up speaking a mishmash of English and German. Yeah. Uh, just, de- just dealing with that, uh, you know, through his growing up and then getting to Yale where people don't talk like that. Uh, and he says, I just feel like a mongrel among thoroughbreds.
1: I love uh, that.
2: And uh, so, you know, it, it's catching him there. It's right in his face. Um, and, you know, he later on, you know, uh, 15 years later, he's teaching here at Union. He said he. It, it took him ten years before he didn't feel like a fraud standing in front of a class at Union. And of course, he's surrounded by faculty colleagues who think there is something fraudulent, uh, <laughs> him being on the faculty. Are you kidding? This guy doesn't have a doctorate and wouldn't have, wouldn't have qualified for one either. You know, not with the grades he got at Yale. Uh, so and and this country bumpkin with these manners that just have nothing to do with this very mannered place. Um, and he feels this all the time, even dragging union students into lefty politics. Union is this great bastion of a social gospel, yeah. but it's not had any real contact with that world until Niebuhr got here. Wow! Uh, so no, I think that th- you can track this issue about where he is and who he's in between and who he's trying to pull from here to there is just there at every phase of his career. And of course, in all of it, he's got a love affair with this country. Uh, yeah. sort of needing to sort of prove his Americanism, but then it comes to a point where he feels he has proven it, uh, but now needs to defend his in, its interests. Um, and he did that, I would say a little too exuberantly, but, um, you know, uh, leaning into that, that, that's his whole career.
0: Excellent. I, you know, and it's interesting they were talking about this because like what Cliff just brought up and we were kind of going over there. Um, the big question that I always have as I kind of read Niebuhr personally, I keep finding myself being like confronted, you know what I mean. I, feel, I like I I never walk away from reading Niebuhr like for a long period of time and am not like, convicted about something I'm doing in my own life, you know. But I, I find this like issue where like I want to like translate that to other people because I feel like a lot of what he has to say is like really would be really good for a lot of the people that I minister to, you know, like a lot of like the critique and a lot of the um, kind of like self reflection that he he forces you to make about yourself. But the big issue that I run into is he's he, there's something that makes him really inaccessible. You know what I mean? There's something like when I'm when I'm like reading him, like you know, after seven years of theological education, I feel like I can kind of understand him kind of, you know, but there's a certain element that makes him inaccessible. And I, I was just wondering like what, what do you think that is about his writing that makes it and maybe you don't think it's inaccessible, but I guess the question would be do you think he's inaccessible? And like what what would that be that makes him inaccessible? And then how do you think we could make his work? Because that's kind of one of the focuses of our podcast. How do you think we could make him more accessible to a more general audience?
2: Um, Oh, that's a wonderful question, Zach. Uh, Firstly, um, no, I have to say, I didn't find him inaccessible. I found him fascinating when I first started reading him. Uh, I caught pretty early on, there's always a dialectic. So if anytime you're feeling that you're confused, not knowing what's going on, well, just find the dialectic, because you've lost it, right? Because uh, there's always some zig and zag between uh, something on one hand and something on the other that he's steering between. What? Uh, so that is that is something, just just that, it's just, just on the page. Um, there's always some uh, push and pull. Uh, that is how he gets his bearings, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's habitual to him. It's a kind of methodological tick. I mean, just even look at his own early sermons. Uh, very first sermons he's giving in his father's pulpit, now his father's father's died. Um, there he is, my goodness, there it is, Niborian dialectic. And, and it's the type that doesn't resolve itself in a synthesis either. It's always a type that's holding on to two different things and, and holding them in some kind of tension. So that is the first thing about, about that. Um, um secondly, yeah, there is a certain, he does have a distinct style, a way of thinking beyond just that issue um, that is um, it, that, that does take some acclamation too. I think if it's if it's just you've you never read anybody like this or if you just um, not run into someone who kind of puts the world together the way that he does and writes in this this manner that is all that is very often fairly abstract. Um, in a way that uh, that does defeat uh, a certain number of students are always just defeated by I can't see the point of it and that yeah. was the case here at Union you know a bunch of the social ethics students they much preferred Harry Ward to Niebuhr oh. and most of the doctoral students you know studied under Ward not Niebuhr because to them it, it, it was they had this issue of what is he talking about <laughs> right um they had they had this here that it just felt like study under Ward and you learn social ethics, study under Niebuhr, well, you just learn whatever Niebuhr thinks, right? Uh, and it's some kind of swirl of issues up here, that's some kind of mix of theology and politics and whatever, um, that was a little bit hard to track. So indeed, there are always, you know, that that's one way of hearing, dealing with Niebuhr, that is that it's just, it has always been thus. Okay. And the, the third thing I would say about that, that I think is, Certainly was helpful to me, uh, and you know, it, it shows, and just how I've already spoken to Cliff. I do think it's important to just kind of see him in sequence, uh, to be able to kind of line it up, um, and to be able to say there is always a story unfolding, um, here with Niebuhr. Um, there is no kind of quintessential Niebuhr where you just read one book, well, now you've got him. You've got certain things that you that are always there, there are certain things always there in Niebuhr, but the fact that he yeah, that he changes politics every 10 years. Um, that's, if it's feeling confusing, well, you know, okay, because it is, it is here confusing. Here. You need to be able to, you need to learn the zig and zag and then see, uh, locate him where he is. And then that helps to understand what am I reading when I'm reading Moral Man? And oh my God, it's just so different from, you know, the, the, the self and the dramas of history or whatever else you might have on your shelf that you're picking off. You can't, Niebuhr is very hard to get if you're just picking random books off a shelf and not historicizing its context.
1: And to add a little bit to that, it's probably take all that we we might consider to be inaccessible and multiply it for our parishioners because to read something like Moral Man and Moral Society, suddenly you're reading about like early 20th century geopolitics, that can be difficult. So there's a historical component to it can make that can make it seem a little bit inaccessible. Also, if you're just jumping into something like nature and destiny of man, all of a sudden he's taking these large systems and kind of colliding them. And you kind of have to have a background of knowing just who the romantics are, who are the naturalists and on and on, all these people that he's kind of running up against each other. So I think that that might be a part of the block maybe mm-hmm. for, Bringing Niebuhr kind of more into the pews a little bit too.
0: One one of the things um, that it, it really kind of exposes me to, I think, that it makes me think. You're know, just as you're explaining there, um, is kind of the shortcomings. I think of my theological education. Definitely, I got I, I came up like in a, so I went to Moody Bible Institute, and then I went to Western Seminary in Portland. And nothing against either of them, but um, it shows a real I think a huge disadvantage to the way that they approach theology in that the only time I've ever like learned about what a dialectic is, is on my own time. You know what I mean? And, and I think that it just kind of like, as you're saying that it's like, oh man, maybe, maybe everybody else gets this. That's done seven years of theology. You know what I mean? And then, yeah, yeah, so I, it, it kind of opens that me up to that. Be like, why didn't we study that? You know, why didn't we read these philosophers? Why didn't we read, you know, it, so it's a real, it, it, I don't know. It makes me think. Um, it's funny though. I give out um, Jeremy Savella's book at Christmas. I always give his book because I find that to be the way that I can make neighbor most accessible in American conscience. I'm like, it's a good introduction. This will <laughs> get you going. Cause that's the first book I read was that book. And that really, I was like, man, I, I got to read more of this guy. But, and with, we read beyond tragedy together before this in kind of preparation for this. And um, it was so funny because we'd get to like one chapter and I'd be like, man, this is genius. Like, this is so good. And then we go to the next chapter and I'd be like, you guys i don't even know if we should be reading this it's so unclear you know be like i don't get i don't get it
2: um both these things i think are true uh, to go to, to clifton's point there a book like moral man and immoral society is chock full of early 20th century disputes in marxist politics in europe you can learn quite a lot about that by reading moral man but my goodness if that's your introduction to <laughs> the modern theology of if someone like me has told you that's, yeah, that's the most important theological book of the 20th century, and you go open it up and start reading it, I just think you're going to be uh, <laughs> just wildly lost. And and there, then, then, there are, then that book has a kind of totemic significance um, in 20th century historiography that's just odd because people like Russell Kirk, you know, the the godfather of American intellectual conservatism claimed that, oh, they just love Reinhold Niebuhr and especially Mm. that book, Moral Man. One time I asked Russell, I said, Russell, have have you actually read it in recent years? (laughs) You you know, all the Marxism that's in it. Uh, Then he admitted, well, yeah, I just, he just thinks of it in terms of, you know it represents certain things they're attacking the liberals, of course, that's what yeah. you know about it, right. Uh, and yet, um, people so people will you'll have a whole legacy of people saying things about that bo- book that's just way off the ranch from what yeah. it's actually about. But it, of course, it has a totemic significance.
0: Well, it's 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 funny you bring up uh, moral man, immoral society, immoral society because you know, I was like just on the, the precipice of like learning about Niebuhr. I had this class where I was, uh, it, we were doing, it's like a historical theology class. We had to pick a, a theological mentor and I was like, I'm going to choose Niebuhr. Like that's who I'm, I'm going to seize the moment and finally get a chance to read more of him. And um, it, it just so happened that it, part of what kind of pushed me onto this is I was watching this talk between Chris Hedges and Cornell West and they were just going on and on about this book, Moral Man and Immoral Society. And I, Probably ill-advised. My my older brother, who's not a Christian or anything, but he, he was he was like deeply into like communism at the time and like trying to like shake through these ideas. Just about to start medical school, but he was just about to get married, and he was trying to kind of form like a prophetic voice. Um, he wanted to be able to speak prophetically to society. And I thought, oh, I just watched this video by Cornell West and Chris Hedges. This book, they say, it's like it's the bomb. And, and <laughs> anyways, I give him the book and I wrote this big, long thing in the front of it, telling him how, like, I you know, I recognize it as he's becoming a, a husband, like hey, form your prophetic voice, man. And this book will help you form a prophetic voice. And now he can't get enough of Eber. He's always trying to read Eber. So it's, it's weird because that was the first book he read. And now that I know the contents of the book, I'm like, how did that work? Like, how did, <laughs> how did he find that interesting? You know what I mean? Like, because he has no theological background or anything. He just was like so gripped by the book. I think it's because he knew quite a bit about communism, not communism, uh, Marxism at the time. And I think how the ideas kind of meshed and confronted him and made him kind of rethink what he was. um, But yeah, I mean, this just this Christmas, I got uh, um, it's the big book that Niebuhr has. My mom bought it for me for Christmas. The big book that has like all a bunch of his major works in it: Irony of American History, Leaves. And I already have it. And so I was like, "Oh," and my brother's like, "Oh, I'll take it. I'll take it." (laughs) I was like, "All right, man." So
2: well, well, Zach, as you know. You know, moral man has hardly any theology in it. I mean, that's, that's what Pitt Van Dusen and these people are Union were so distraught about. Yeah. Well, you're attacking us, but with what? It's, it feels like you've left, you know, God's just left out. Uh, and it's Karl Marx who's describing the world and, uh, and, 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 and condemning everything that Union Theological Seminary stands for. Uh, and that critique did get to Niebuhr. That plus the critique of his brother. Uh, the two, the kind of a pincher movement uh of the theological liberals who actually do believe in god uh and 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 his brother uh who's got the, his own sort of critique of liberalism coming at him from both sides saying you know i don't know where you are theologically anymore but you got you need to find out um and he did spend the rest of the 1930s uh you know trying to trying to figure that out because he realized indeed i i don't know where i am any longer
0: like i said it might might have been ill-advised i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I was surprised, um, and I, I love what you just said, Dr. Dorian, because I remember you you writing about how Van Dusen was relieved when Niebuhr wrote reflections on the end of an era because some of you know his Christianity was starting to speak more, um, and uh, he, I think you said something like he was relieved to find out he was still a Christian, which is funny. And something that I think that my entry into Niebuhr early on, before I got to Union, was very much in the neo-Orthodox strain. And so for a long time, when I look at Moral Man and Moral Society, I saw him as negotiating his Christianity with Marxism and and the times. And I'm blown away by the way that you kind of describe Moral Man and Moral Society as no, Niebuhr's actually swinging in from the left. And, And if anything, he's questioning whether christianity as composed currently in his time is even helpful for the question almost um, about socialism so it's not like he's you know negotiating this for, from within christianity but it's it's more like a critique from the from the left left from the from uh the socialist left more than anything well it's beyond even that it's more beyond just the socialist left since of course
2: there is a socialist wing of the of of the social gospel, I mean, Christian socialism that is fully socialist and ethical. Um, and he, he's never quite, almost never quite fair when he talks about that. I mean, if you press him on it, he will say, yes, of course, a lot of what I'm saying now in the 30s, Rauschenbusch said before me. Um, but he, um, he, he was never part of that and he's never sort of quite fair to it. Plus, what he knows is that The way that tradition in liberal Protestantism turned out in the 1920s is something he knows very much about because that's that's the social gospel that then turned pacifist. So all those social gospelers who repented of the pro-war sermons they gave in 1917, 1918, and they spent much of the rest of their careers just repenting uh, of being pro-war. And of course that's what Niebuhr was all through the 1920s. And so then when he turns against that, that's formative for him, it's absolutely crucial that he's, he's got to find a means to say, here's why I'm no longer a Christian pacifist. And it was for Marxist reasons um, that he made that argument. When he is turning now against where he's just been for the past dozen years, um, it's on the basis of a Marxist sort of, not just socialist, because uh, to him, these socialists, you know, too many of them are just ethically idealistic. Christian socialism isn't much better. Uh, than merely liberal Protestantism, because they're both just, they're both kind of a certain kind of ethical idealism, just, you know, writ large. The, the critique is, is uh, you know, of that. And of course that's what he just hammers on. So it's, it's yeah, it's a neo-Marxist politics that's driving the argument in moral man and immoral society, which is why not only Cornell, but even, you know, Chris Hedges just love this. It. And like, yeah, that's, that's their answer to what, what's Niebuhr at his best, 32 to 34 for sure. Right. Including yeah. including the reflections book because that is the most Marxist book that Niebuhr mm. ever wrote. Though as Zach says, near the end there, last last chapter, yeah. Or you were saying, Clifton, um, mm-hmm. he does have that chapter on a sovereign grace, God of grace and glory, that Van Dusen is like, oh, okay, good. He still <laughs> believes. In God.
1: Where does he? I, I'm sorry, uh, Aaron's up next, but so I just had a, a question that went along with that. At what point does he stop? articulating history through, because in, in Moral Man and more Society, he's still hopeful of kind of the, the proletariat consciousness emerging uh, within American capitalism. Uh, at some point, he stops articulating history in kind of a Hegelian way, and more in a Hebraic or Augustinian way. What, where in his timeline does he make that shift?
2: Um, so this is the struggle of the whole 1930s for him, and of course, the, the two sides are of him. That is, he's theolo- got to work out his theology, and meanwhile, there's his radical politics that he's deeply involved in. Um, he's got to pull them together. I mean, the, 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 the first run at trying to get clear theologically of course is this great book of 1935 interpretation of christian ethics yeah. and there that's an argument about how liberal christianity is wrong and so is conservative christianity and we got to find you know something that kind of steers uh, between them so that's the dialectic that gets him through that book but he still hasn't he's he's dealt with his jesus problem by the time he's dealt with, he's written that book Okay. Um, but he still doesn't really have a mature theological perspective that holds together as theology um, in his politics. And he spends the rest of the thirties struggling with this. All right, now, um, and I it, the the short answer to the to the theology side of your question is that in the late nineteen thirties, Augustine does start to take the place that Marx was playing for him before. He's always got to have this so realistic critique of sentimental liberal Protestantism uh, that he's got to have because that's just that's just core and to blast away at liberal idealism. So um, the 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 core the the what that goes into a, a polemical critique of liberal Protestantism um, that previously Marx was providing for him that. That is happening in the later 1930s where it becomes more Augustinian. And certainly that's what's happening in Nature and Destiny. I mean, that, He has made that move when he writes Nature and Destiny. However, I should say for people who read Richard Fox or just all these other biographies that are out there, biographical stuff on Niebuhr, virtually nothing out there really gets the, the, the political, um, the concrete what is going on with Niebuhr there in the, in the late 30s. Um, and frankly, I was something of a newcomer to it when I wrote this recent book on American democratic socialism. It's the first time I really, you know, did the archival work that made me realize how far to the left in the Socialist Party mm. Niebuhr still was in 1937-38. Mm. Fox just misses this completely. Yeah. On um, fact, Fox, what Fox says about this is just just flat wrong. I mean, much of Fox's biography is just utterly wonderful, but. Um, but this party, he really does get wrong, um, and you got to, you just got to dig in to even see it. Niebuhr played a role, a, a, an important role, in the 1930s in driving the what they called the old guard out of the Socialist Party, and he's making it from a far left, um, not just socialist but Marxist perspective. So in terms of his own kind of day-to-day politics, that's still what he was all through the 1930s. Though meanwhile, he, what he also is having to deal with is just the fact that the new deal has actually turned out a whole lot better than he was claiming that it would. Um, it's not just a Band-Aid. Uh, it's actually changed um, the, the, the lay of the land politically. And he's starting to sort of deal um, with that in the, in the th- late 30s. Meanwhile, of course, on top of all of it is just the sheer threat and now reality of World War II coming, where now he's got a major fight on his hands in order to drag his group into the war kind of shame him into the war so yeah. all these things are coming together for him in the late 30s um and then 1940 um when he's you know giving nature and destiny um and giving it in fairly highbrow fashion while you know literally you can hear bombs falling in, in Edinburgh um yeah. and um, amazing, and the man. war is on it's extraordinary you know what he who he was and what he lived through yeah it's an amazing story
3: Aaron do you have a question So I guess the last two questions that were asked were really about Niebuhr's relevance for today. Um, And I have a similar question, but to a specific um, strain of things that are happening in America and in the UK. And that's with conspiracy theories like under Trumpism, under QAnon. How... Do you think Niebuhr's thought is relevant? Um, I dare say, as a vaccine or as a potential, uh, you know, um, good thing to inject into that sort of dialogue. But because the reason I think this is quite relevant is um, Niebuhr does say democracy um, is a way of ra- like a, um, rationally organizing our irrationalities, and so I wonder if Niebuhr's assessment today, if he were so around, is is our society too irrational? Is it too ir- irreligious? Uh, what is going on and how do you think uh, his thought would be relevant to these sorts of things going on today?
2: Well, uh, thanks, Sarah. Um, firstly, I think there are, there are some deep premises in Niebuhr that he doesn't much talk about because they are really sort of presupposed. Um, mm-hmm. And so Niebuhr can be made out to be a certain kind of neo-orthodox theologian, even a Barthian, um, that in fact, and then there's lots of out there, you know, where that sort of uh, reads him um, that way, which I think is is not right to him. I mean, Karl Barth was just a total non-starter uh, for Niebuhr theologically because he does have this at a deep level; he doesn't actually question. Um, the importance of being reasonable uh, and and following the evidence and uh, and just even a certain kind of moral compass. I mean, the idea of oh, we're just going to do theology by explicating a, a revelation that we can't see, but we're just trying to track. I mean, the, right. that the sort of um, that just tracking a self-authenticating revelatory witness argument that that is that is the Bartian. Uh, approach. Niebuhr always said, you know, when he actually wrote about this, it's just utterly a non-starter uh, for him. And, and why? Mm-hmm. Because his deeper premises are liberal. For all that he's blasting away at liberalism, um, the, the sort of, it's just always, it's just liberalism sort of gone too far or liberalism too mm-hmm. sentimentalized. He does have a powerful critique against liberal idealism and li- especially liberal sentimentality. But the idea that well we're just gonna we're just gonna shred uh, reason um, uh, rationality um, that it's always just merely the will to power um, and you know uh, and just just run with a kind of irrationality that's just never him empirical is one of his god terms mm-hmm. um, and so um, in his later years uh, this does come out there as, as he reads all these books about him as though he's some as though he's some kind of barthian and reads people like Russell Kirk saying always oh, some kind of conservative, um, and just even sees what's happened in theology, and also has some regret about the way, about the extent to which his work was polemical, that he's always skewering people, and sometimes in very personal ways. I mean, just the way he used the word stupid over and over and over. Um, Niebuhr does become embarrassed about all of that, in um, his later career, he says, you know, I was an impatient young man, and I'm always, you know, looking to skewer somebody, um, and I, that, all those polemics that I specialized in for so long, I, I'm embarrassed about them now. He I, I, I wish I could have sustained a more consistently empirical attitude, and his motto for that is his buddy, John Bennett, you know, because John Bennett has all of Niebuhr's tropes, um, but always in aware that doesn't misrepresent people is very fair-minded in how it describes other people, very even keeled, um, recognizing the amount of liberalism that's still in them, rep- rep- recognizing all the social gospel that's still in them for all that they've blasted away against it. Um, and I think, you know, it just, it has to play out. You also have to see Niebuhr at the end, what he said about himself uh, at the end to really sort of get him whole. Um, but I think that these aspects were always there, um, the, the the deep the deep sort of premises about not just liberal rationality, empiricism, following the evidence, uh, in and the like uh, that are always true for him, mm-hmm. but also a social gospel understanding about his own field, the field the field he teaches, social ethics, ha- has no basis whatsoever apart from the social gospel. That's where it came from. And he assumes just like everyone who founded his field that the church has a mission to struggle for, for social justice, to transform structures of society in the direction of social justice. That's what social ethics is about. And Niebuhr mm-hmm. is not a refutation of that. He's just a Christian realist way of defending you know, and explicating um, that. I think all of that, all of it is, is, is relevant. I mean, there, he's, he is the towering figure. Uh, in, in the whole tradition of Christian social ethics for these reasons. So if Christian social ethics has any sort of application, you know, this whole social ethical story has any application It starts, I mean, Niebuhr is always an exemplary of kind of what that is for all of the wild stuff that's in him and things that are hard to explain and um, things that are difficult.
1: Well, one, one thing that I always appreciated about Niebuhr's articulation of, I guess you could say, like the authority of Scripture or special uh, special revelation, is he calls it correlative. So it's it's something that is affirmed by you waking up every day and you see in the mirror the story of Adam and Eve. You see these things play out in real time, and seeing Scripture out in the world as it's happening like this has a way of kind of grounding it and what I'm hearing you you say Dr. Jordan in in relation to like conspiracy culture and things like that yeah maybe comment on this but um is it possible that kind of the otherworldly nature of evangelical theology has left it kind of vulnerable to the irrationalities of conspiracy Mm -hmm. culture
2: Yes. Well, you know, Karl Barth's critique of the Reformed tradition is it left the door too far open to natural revelation and common grace and, yeah, some kind of natural law kind of argument where we're still trying to get some mileage out of the the light of God's spirit in us, in our reason, in our idealism, um, and so on. Uh, And certainly, you know, Barth just went to war at that, especially in in the key part of his career when he becomes a theologian. Um he even sort of tears that out of his own early thought, out of his own those Romans commentaries, where he's still got an argument about conscience uh in there. Uh and when Bart rewrote, started again on the church dogmatics, he's he's just trying so hard just to hang with an argument about sola scriptura that scripture alone um, is the rule of faith and that it's the only way to do theology as a as a kind of witness to God's saving witness in the only authoritative witness we have, which is scripture, um, and then through a reformed uh, maze. Um, so he's, he's owning up to being reformed, that's why it's church dogmatics, but nonetheless, he's even got a critique of how this played out in the reformed tradition, because he's really trying to get rid of um, that part of the reformed tradition. Um, that is, from his standpoint, it just, it left the door too open um, to still, you know, u- be using, giving some kind of theological sanction to reason um, and, and sort of, you know, natural revelation and common grace and the like. And I've gone lo- long just to set the, the what, what was just a non-starter for Niebuhr. Niebuhr always, I think is more deeply reformed uh, on that. He always is sort of looking for, uh, you know, seeing the grace and glory of God in the natural world, even though he doesn't write about the natural world that much per se. Uh, his, you know, the, 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 the amount of nature that really interested Niebuhr was human nature. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but writing out of that uh, in a reformed way, I think, you know, that that is Niebuhr.
3: Well, uh, well I think um, if I can just ask one more question at the back of Cliff, because I think the, the question asked was quite interesting. Has the church, church's theology been too secluded from the concerns of the world? I think in in Nature, Desi Man Niebuhr, writes that the whole Christian drama of salvation is rejected ostensibly because of the incredible character of the myths of creation, fall, and atonement. And so it's not as if, uh, it's more or less to do with the story. It's the stories itself that Christianity provides. So... I, I I want to wonder and venture to say that maybe the Bartier movements, um, that all those issues uh, with that theology being receding into some otherworldly place, and not dealing with all the relevant uh, social issues going on, I wonder if it's not to do with the theology but just the application of it. If if that's
2: well, uh, first you know what Niebuhr always said about Bart is that you know, that kind of theology is pretty good at responding to a crisis. Uh, mm-hmm. Bart did rally a couple of times in a way that's uh, mostly commendable. Uh, although even there, even in Bart at his best, Niebuhr's got some problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, then, but then he says, more importantly is just, you know, in between the crises, it's just not, it's just not worldly. Enough. It's just too otherworldly. Um, and, it's, and it's too, um, yeah, it's just coming from a place that isn't real. I mean, reality, realism, these are like God terms to uh, It's got to be grounded. You've got to be able to show um, the relevance of it. And when, of course, he, when he made this out programmatically in his great book, you know, Interpretation of Christian Ethics, he says, you know, we got one kind of Christianity that's liberal, that just doesn't take Christian myths. The moment that they deconstructed these Christian myths and saw that they were mythical, um, they got rid of them and replace them with a myth of modern culture, of modern progress. And mm-hmm. um, they just put that in its place because now they've got a better myth um, and just lost um, the deep truths that are in these powerful biblical myths. Uh, meanwhile, over here, we got this conservative kind of Christianity that's still taking the myths literally, still living in a world of myth. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just totally um, not credible. And so... We get generations of people that just reject Christianity because they think that's what it is, um, and what we need is this—you know—steering in between them, in which we take um, these Christian myths seriously but not literally. Right? right. Um, that's the maxim, um, and uh, and really, theologically, he's always trying to work out what that would mean at the theological level, and then apply it um, to the dilemmas of our age, which in which these two. The, these two mistaken traditions are both getting it wrong all the time and he just because he is a polemicist he's blasting away at both of them
3: I love the I think I question wasn't it Cliff I'm sorry if I oh I, that's okay is, no you got it
1: you got it uh I, I was just gonna say I love the critique Niebuhr gives of Bartian of the Bartians at the World Council of Churches at the, at the first one where he says something like um yeah you'll respond to the devil when both cloven feet and Tail are showing, but uh, but not when only one cloven foot is showing, or it's something like that. Was, yeah, that's
2: right. That's um, exactly right.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that's this is a really good place to insert our our the great question that we all have, having read this work by you. But I think Cliff kind of has a, prepar- a prepared question. Yeah. It's itching. I'm I'm ready for you to ask it. I'm ready.
1: I'm. Let's get into. it. Yeah, this has been on our minds for the last couple of weeks um, regarding your portrayal of Niebuhr and making of American liberal theology. Um, I hate for us to get into semantics, but that's where we ended up going. Um, but uh, I think that you're trying to prove something about Niebuhr here and where to locate him within history, within the history of liberal, liberal theology. So to preface my question, this question a bit, there are a lot of Niebuhrs, which you've alluded, alluded to earlier. There are a lot of Niebuhrs floating around out there. And your work here seems to be an attempt to firmly reclaim Niebuhr for the liberal tradition. But we're curious, to do so, it seems that your definition of what it means to be liberal becomes somewhat, I don't know whether to call it narrower, more narrow or or, or generic uh, for Niebuhr's for the time Niebuhr's writing in, you say on page 453, and the context for this is uh, the conversation you talked about earlier between Reinhold and Richard, but you say, quote, Reinhold preserved the liberal idea that religion is saving and transformative. And a little bit further down the page, you say, for, quote, for Reinhold, as for liberal Christianity, religion was an energizing power that served human, human needs, and dictated human responsibilities. This seems like the thread you're trying to kind of attach for all the ways that Niebuhr has criticized liberalism and liberalism has criticized him. This seems like the thread that is connecting them, but there's no social gospel dimension necessarily there. The notion of progress is no longer necessarily there. And what I'm hearing is that liberalism became to you the way that you're describing it is basically an adamant belief that religion is here to primarily make the world better. And at the time, I'm not sure how many liberals would find that kind of general definition descriptive of the liberal project. So my question is, did you as the author kind of generalize this definition in order to include Niebuhr within liberalism or is this a testament perhaps to how Niebuhr impacted Liberalism, or something else.
2: Um, more the latter. Uh, the second possibility. Um, you know, right now I'm um, I'm writing a one-volume history of American theological liberalism. So I got these uh, these three monster volumes out there, and I try to get it down to one. And oh my God, if I could possibly have justified leaving Niebuhr out of it, I would have, uh, <laughs> because my um, you know shrink, shrink, shrink. I am just it's, it's I go through this every day with how do I get this down uh, to a volume that's gonna be you know 700 pages when it took me three monster volumes before. Plus we've had 20 years since then that I've got to get into this thing. Uh, so I, if I could possibly have left Niebuhr out of it, I would have, um, <laughs> and yet, um, and even sort of playing with the idea uh, of, wow. of, of doing so, you know, I sort of imagined what it, what it would look like. Well, it's ridiculous. <laughs> He's such a towering figure yeah. in his time. And then what comes from him. And indeed, what liberalism more and more becomes his influence in the field uh, is going to change what in fact it was. And you just got, you know, the fact that he himself even saying in the latter parts of his career, of course I'm theologically liberal. What else could I be? Right? I mean, at a certain deep level, uh, the idea that you would that there's that your reason is some authority and that you're tracking between uh these two you know between over belief and disbelief uh and that you accept the historical critical approach to the bible and that you let science explain the physical world and that you're um you're applying this sort of social gospel criterion about what it means to be relevant this sort of classic yeah definition of liberalism that i've got going in all three of these volumes which does not include the progress motif you're right um that's only one part of liberal you know it wasn't. Mm-hmm. That, that didn't describe it back, back when, when Immanuel Kant defines what liberalism is in Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got a whole prehistory uh, before you get to the progressive era. Um, and then you got a whole history subsequent to the progressive era too. It's only sort of one era um, in which this sort of progress motif just rules um, mm-hmm. the day. And that's just, if you're just trying to be a nice person of any kind, you're, you're, you believe in progress. So I'm not gonna have a definition of liberalism, something that's 300 years old, um, that's mm-hmm. ruled by what was really just one generations or one one eras, you know, um, motif, where they're struggling with evolution and having to struggle with Darwinian theory and thinking, well, we can live even with Darwin if we can idealize it, um, mm-hmm. which what they did, right? And mm-hmm. they, they've, they've idealized evolution in a way. They've, they've just folded it into their progress motif. Um, mm-hmm. And people, it's not just them who believed it. My God, Marxists believed in in progress. Yeah, um, you know, which is what you know Niebuhr gets on when he writes, you know, these these critical works about the children of light. You know, children. Not all the people you would think of. I mean, he. So many groups go into the children of light. He does own and own up to this. You got that ten-page section that's just torrential. Uh, where he's telling, he's using the word "stupid" seven times to describe <laughs> all the children of light. You can't believe all the people who go in there. Well, yeah. it's all of modern, basically modernity. All of it uh, goes in there.
1: Oh, that's uh, real. That's really helpful because you know, going into this, it's clear that Niebuhr isn't a Karl Barth situation. Where he, when he leaves liberalism, he is liberalism's number one enemy, and but there does seem to be that relationship certainly. but also at the same time, sometimes it seems like maybe we could call it Christian realism. It seems like Niebuhr's doing his own thing a little bit too. but as you're as you're saying, it's easily seen kind of within the liberal tradition as well.
0: yeah I, I think it's so interesting because just the the like um, the, the educational background as you could say, the theological background that I come from is you know they divine, theological liberalism very narrowly and it's very and you know probably not all of them do but you know from that you know more conservative background it very much has to do with like how do you view scripture you know it really comes down to that and that's what kind of cliff and i were going back on back and forth on as we were kind of going through your book is it's like i think i think reading through this i i definitely am much more persuaded right because i read savella's book and i would have thought that he was kind of this middle of the road character you know like in terms of where he stood theologically I think I kind of came away from reading your book and thinking, okay, he's pretty squarely in the liberal camp, but he definitely has some attachment to kind of some of these ideas we, I, I might consider more conservative theologically. But all that to say, I think you give a broader vision of what liberal theology is, and I think that's helpful.
2: Here at Union for decades, my late beloved friend James Gone taught 103. Uh, and when he 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 dealt with liberalism as quickly as possible, uh, and it was what is Enlightenment by Immanuel Kant uh, and a couple chapters of Adolf von Harnack as uh, what is Christianity? And that was liberalism. As long as he could sort of hold it as something that tightly defined, it was something that you could leave behind pretty, pretty quickly. In fact, I mean, I think Clifton will probably remember this. He probably had that course. Not only did we dispatch the liberals that quickly, that same week, you also read J. Gresham Machen. <laughs> yes. Uh, so we also yeah. dealt with uh conservative evangelical critique of it, right? One week we got on those course. people and now on to Karl Barth, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that that's a union we did that. Yeah. Um and certainly historically, um, you know, there there is a classic difference, even in the German context, between those who identified liberal theology as just the Immanuel Kant tradition, mm-hmm. uh, or those who identified it simply as the ritual tradition. I mean, these are both substantial traditions in Germany of just of just saying, "Oh, that's what liberalism." Again, go narrow uh, yeah. because you know that's you know if we if we open it up more than that, well, then you've got almost all of modern German theologies in there somewhere. Um, so there are reasons why you would go narrow uh, when you do, and yet um, when I'm trying to take account of something that's actually hundreds of years long and got varieties, I'm not. It would make the work easier if i just go narrow and then just track these you know these few people out um but i think it's also less true because for one thing then you're not even getting the radiance what's what it's going what work it's actually doing in the world and how it informs all manner of things around it
0: you know it's funny to me because you know just having come up more in a conservative background of theologically um people didn't find niebuhr very threatening you know i mean they didn't find his theology as threatening but yet he, it seems like some of the foundational ideas that he had, they would have found threatening on it with if anybody else used them. You know, it's kind of like their association with Bonhoeffer, like they're very big fans of Bonhoeffer, but they don't know the fact that he was like, I would say very theologically liberal probably, um, just from the little knowledge I have of him. But it, it's kind of a weird. It, so it's like there's definitely like a pulling back that like they want to like, hey, we're gonna keep these two guys, but they they see it, believably, a lot of these same premises that you know other people that they despise believe. So it's like this weird. I don't know, weird relationship they have with these characters. Yeah,
2: that's
1: right. Zach, did you have the next question?
0: Yeah, um, and, you know, it's kind of, kind of related. There's this line um, on, your, on page 482 where Niebuhr says, well, as, as you write, Niebuhr declared with a whiff of incredulity, um, I do not know how it is possible to believe in anything pertaining to God and eternity, literally. But then in the next, the next page, uh, he's kind of anticipating his response to Tillich. He says, if it is, su- if it is supernaturalist, uh, sorry, supernaturalistic to affirm that faith discerns the key to specific meaning above the categories of philosophy, ontological and epistemological, then I must plead guilty of being a supernaturalist. The whole of the Bible is an exposition of this kind of supernaturalism. If we are embarrassed by this and try to interpret the biblical religion in other terms, we, we end in changing the very character of the Christian faith. Um, I guess my, my, my question is kind of complicated related to that. And that is, you know, I want to ask the simple question, which is just like, where did Niebuhr end up with this idea of like the supernatural elements of the Bible? Did Niebuhr really believe it? But, but I, I I at the same time, you're asking. yeah, well, but no, no, but not even that it, it's, it's more like, Or did he find it kind of with the modern mind when he says that, is he saying like, Hey, like, it's just not reasonable to believe these things. I guess it's a hard question to ask because I'm not, I'm not asking the simple question of did he actually believe these things? I guess that's the easiest way to ask it. Let's just go that way. Like, like uh, to what degree did he, did he retain these things as elements of like um, foundational to his ethics foundational to the way that he approached life and faith?
2: Yes. Firstly, it's, It's utterly core to Niebuhr this claim that his theology is biblical, that he is a biblical preacher, a biblical theologian, that there are these um, tropes in the Bible. There's sort of deep, often mythic truths in the Bible that he is explicating. And certainly we're gonna let historical criticism do what it does. Um, to the Bible, deconstruct the historical critical story behind what texts we have, recognizing also that the Bible consists of various kinds of literature, myth and folklore and legend and proverbial saying and so on. And so the truths of what the canons of what it means to speak truthfully for any of these genres are differ from genre to genre. he's, He's liberal as far as all of that is concerned. Um, and so you're never going to see him saying, "Oh, we just got to, got to hang in there and believe in the physical resurrection or any such thing." He just thinks that's a mistaken way of operating, um, and um, and 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 not credible. Um, but that, but you know, so this this maxim about taking scripture seriously but not literally. Um, this is a watchword to him. He just thinks that's, that's what theology at its best is always doing. That's what Augustine is doing, as far as he can see. Well, look at Augustine. He's not nearly as fanciful as Augustine. Augustine can see allegories in, you know, in, in every sentence of the Bible. Uh, yeah. Le- Le- Niebuhr is far more concrete uh, than that, as virtually all modern people are. Um, but, um, that the, uh, that scripture is this kind of storehouse of these, of these deep treasures that we need to try to explicate, um, that, that, that is what Niebuhr is all always believes. And he, he doesn't believe that any philosophical system is compensation for what he doesn't believe historically. I mean, one way to try to deal with this authority and what you really believe issue is just to say, well, whatever the Bible says, I'm gonna to try to believe it. It's some kind of realistic narrative, right? Whatever it says, Bible says it, I believe it. Um, well, one way of, of dealing with it, if you don't have that, if you don't say, no, I actually, it's, it's all up for grabs what I think really happened. Um, and I'm just trying to explicate what's the religious meaning in the Bible. One way of dealing with that, of course, is to impose some kind of philosophical system or, or, to, or, to, or, to, or to create, to devise, derive some sort of philosophical system um, that makes sense of whatever truths have been funded by the scriptural witness. You can make that sort of argument. And, of course, Niebuhr always denies that he does that. Right? He, he's also against that, uh, and he thinks that's, that's the Tolikian mistake. Um, that Tillich really does sort of replace um, the scriptural myth with a kind of Hegelian philosophical system of his own devising um, that then whatever, whatever propositions he's willing to defend have to do with that kind of philosophical coherence, not that. And he thinks that's, that's a way of imprisoning the God of the biblical witness. Um, and the God, the God of the biblical witness is trying to speak to us through the scripture. So why would we substitute some word of our own you know, that message, which as you're saying, yeah, this is why conservative evangelicals don't fear Niebuhr the same way, because they do hear this, uh, yeah. in, and, and it is there. The holding fast, well, holding fast, that would be, that's interesting. Um, the holding on, at least to the this claim of, of being a biblical theologian. Now, where it, where it starts to get dicey is when you start to pin him down on certain specifics about yeah. uh, history and finer points of theology and what he what sort of philosophy actually seems to be in there because there's a kind of Christian personalism that's in Niebuhr, that's just roaring in him, but he won't he won't own up to it because he claims he's not philosophical, right? Hmm. So anytime you try to pin him down on anything in these three categories, what does he say? I am not a theologian, right? <laughs> I don't do finer I love books. it. I am a social activist <laughs> just trying to, and not a preacher who's just trying to apply the scriptural witness to what's going on in our time. I don't get bogged down in that stuff, right? So in the first trip the that they did for him uh, when you've got various theological, you know, the, uh, uh, theological types kind of, kind of wanting to press him on, on these specific points, that's his go-to to just say, I don't do what you do. Uh, he even says that to Emil Bruner that that's for you to kind of sort that kind of thing. Out. <laughs> I, I, that's not my work. So uh,
0: how, I guess just to follow up question, and maybe you kind of explain you kind of explained this already, but like, how does this idea that, uh, I mean, I know, I, I know somewhat of how this works, but when he says, if it is supernaturalistic to affirm the faith discerns the key to specific meaning above the categories of philosophy, ontological and, or, or epistemological, it, it seems like he sees it as like a, it's not, he, he, he goes along and he's saying to you, okay, theology is not above all these things. We need to be using epistemology to then, you know, uh, to kind of refine these things. But says, but it's not quite below them. It's like it's just above them, right? It's it, it it actually, and I almost see like a there is this element that, that it transcends these other elements that are below it, right? They they may speak to it, but they're not quite as high on the hierarchy. Maybe but I miss also know
1: like who he's talking to, too. Though I mean, I think he's yeah. kind of hopping into Tillich's language a little bit here, yeah, to, to push back against him. But I'll let well, Dr. respond.
2: I mean, um the scriptural witnesses to an infinite God of of grace and glory who created the world and has the world in his hands. Niebuhr believes in that God. He prays to that God every night. He has a personal relationship to an infinite personal God uh, of grace and glory, witnessed to in the scriptural witness. That is Niebuhr. Um, So he's every bit as much a believer in that God as was Karl Barth, now what you guys are getting into now is that there's even a way of talking about that in Tillich. I mean, that, that God above God, um, that, you know, Tillich, I mean, Tillich is, is much stronger in kind of leading with his negations and saying, we need to kill that, that super temporal God, uh, of, uh, of history that, uh, is an idol. Um, mm-hmm. they all have, all three of them, Bart and Niebuhr and Tillich have in common, um, a, a Paulinist way of talking about faith uh, as faith is a gift, it's not our achievement. Um, and they all have a, a strong critique of idolatry of, of the, just that's just the worst thing you could ever do theologically is to enshrine or in some way absolutize something that's merely human. So they all have that, and they're all powerfully sincere. Mm-hmm. And, and what they say about it, they just have different ways of kind of fencing off or saying what that means operatively in their theology. And of course, to Bart and Niebuhr, Tillich has just lost too much of the infinite personal God of Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, just, he's just going too far trying to slay the God of Feuerbach and Nietzsche uh, in order to appeal to people uh, who don't believe in any God at all. Um, And, you know, to them, this, no, we can't, we can't, we can't try to, uh, can't do that. Um, And, 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 you know, it's, there's something offensive even in doing so. So Niebuhr and Bart are in fact closer with regard to that, to that question of, you know, who, who made the world and who, to whom do you pray at night? Is it a personal God or is it just an idea? That is, that's still them.
0: Yeah, that's a very, that's incredibly clear, clarifying because that, that was just a, that's a question I, I kind of kept coming away from reading this. So I appreciate that.
3: Yeah. Do you do you think Niebuhr might retain some Platonic ways of thinking about God and his infinite otherness? And the seventh letter, Plato talks about it's really difficult for language in the realm of becoming to describe the forms because language is contained in the world. So do you think maybe Niebuhr is kind of unconsciously having a bit of a, a difficulty with theology because he seems that maybe that theology m- might just be kind of a worthless exercise and just our language? Does, does that make any sense? Firstly, Niebuhr taught the history of
2: Christian ethics. I mean, that that was his big course at Niebu- at Union. Yeah two-semester course, um, and he, he was, a lot of it, Where he was self-taught um, in this field, and he's highly conscious of just how much of this tradition, just most of it, is in fact Neoplatonist, uh, that it just doesn't even acquire categories without Neoplatonism, uh, and of course, Augustine is just the high priest of uh, this old tradition, of course, and he knows what he owes to Augustine, so the fact that he's in some kind of dance with Neoplatonism all the time, he's certainly aware of, However, he also has an argument about this, right? To say there's something in the biblical tradition that's actually improvement on um, this Neoplatonist tradition because Neoplatonism is actually, is in fact otherworldly other or sort of lifting above the world of reason and spirit above the world of embodiment and, and, uh, and the like. And actually the Bible is better. The Bible is more integral uh, or this, so it isn't. It isn't a dualistic um, view, verb view, but it's integral. It's holistic, um, and so he's always making a claim about the about the biblical way of thinking is better um, than this this Neoplatonist tradition that it's always boxing with because to the extent that we get philosophy from anywhere, of course it's Neoplatonism. So yeah, Niebuhr is doing um, uh, is making an argument about all all of that all the time, and I'd say this is a clue to the difference between volume one and volume two of Nature and Destiny, um, because he's much more polemical in making the argument I just explicated in volume one. And he got hit hard by, by Robert Calhoun when he did so. He said, oh, great. You know, Christian theology is a, is a tournament, right? Uh, where you're just lining up the people you're against uh, and shooting away at people you actually don't understand very well uh, and are stereotyping. And it's a kind of line up your stereotypes and now and now blast away. And Niebuhr, Niebuhr felt that critique. No critique ever hit him the way that Calhoun critique did of volume one. Because, of course, Calhoun was a master of the data. Never wrote much, never wrote very much, but is someone, just, just a legendary teacher um, at Yale. And also, just to flip it over, was an old-style liberal Christian pacifist. So Niebuhr also felt that Calhoun's probably, this. there's some revenge coming here uh, in the way he wrote that review. However, he felt the the, the devastation of that, of that critique that because Calhoun named the very inner inadequacies that Niebuhr felt knowing that he just doesn't have scholarly training just flat out isn't a scholar in the way that someone like Calhoun was. And so Mm -hmm. Calhoun named his vulnerabilities. And so uh, Henry Sloan Coffin and Ursula Niebuhr helped him make sure that volume two is combed, a lot of that polemicizing um, that's in volume one, it's it's clean of that in volume two. And Mm -hmm. now you have a much more kind of restrained, scholarly, really beautifully written Volume two, Niebuhr, theologically, is really the best of uh, mm-hmm. all of his sort of theological work. Um, and you don't, the shooting gallery atmosphere um, is gone uh, and is a far more humble way of sort of talking about, you know, a glorious inherited, inheritance that's got Neoplatonism and Aristotle too uh, and a certain argument about the Bible that he's still defending, um, but in a way that isn't, you know, not, not polemical so much um, anymore.
1: What's fascinating that I just realized uh, between you and Aaron, you answering Aaron's question about this relationship with Neoplatonism, is that volume one is looks very kind of via negativa a little, of kind of you you don't start with a premise. you kind of you kind of uh, back your way into this corner where Christianity, is kind of the last one standing uh, by way of kind of chopping at all the rest of them a little bit. And it seems like basically saying that, you know, our language is not kind of good enough to get us to that, to that God. um, But we can arrive at it through critique of everything else. I don't know if that makes sense. That argument is
2: definitely there in nature and destiny and the moment does matter. Because he actually says it then even more explicitly in some of the articles that later were collected in Christianity and Power Politics, um, you know, the, the his his essays of that time, where he's saying, yeah, this is the we are we've inherited a modern age that's arrived at where we are right now, uh, with the world at war and. Um, and one European nation after another, really, really thinking that it's advanced beyond Christianity. Um, and look at what hell that has left us in. And even willing to kind of some, still somewhat romanticize England, say, England is the great holdout, which of course it was in that time. You got little England holding out against you know, the whole, uh, the Nazis overrunning all of Europe at that point. Um, and, uh, and, and Niebuhr feeling that uh, just say just to say well one you know one way of talking about this is they're they're the country that's got most the most christianity that's left in europe uh their repository of that um is england um and we're not going to privilege an argument about you know what happened in with english imperialism to say oh that's what we need to talk about which is what his friend norman thomas still can't get over uh in 1940 you know still can't quite get with we need to join england in the war and of course that's that's what niebuhr is his primary audience is a US American audience is not willing to enter the war. Um, and he's trying to get them there and making an argument about you know, Christian civilization is at stake here um, because we've, we've tried out all manner of things and some of them just even more, you know, one more toxic um, than the other, one more idolatrous than the other. And here we are, um, we, have to, we have to be willing um, to say, um, that Christian, that Christian notions about an infinite personal God and an individual person who is uh, this, who is um, has a sacred dignity by virtue of being a child of God. These ideas didn't come from anywhere else. They came from Christianity, and now they are at stake. Um, and he doesn't say. Now, the philosophical way of talking about this, I've just explicated Christian personalism. He never says that, right? Because uh, he's just not willing to go philosophical. Um, and yet, it's, it's—I would say—it's one of the most powerful arguments for Christian pers- for the Christian personalist tradition ever written by someone who didn't call himself a Christian personalist. And yet, you know,
1: there it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, I have two questions, but I'm going to put them together and kind of talking about Niebuhr's personal life. You mentioned Ursula. So my first question is, how much did Ursula actually do for Reinhold? I don't know if that's answerable. Uh, second question is his relationship with Tillich. Um, very different personalities. I remember being at Union and hearing all kinds of crazy stories about Tillich, uh, things I almost wish I didn't know. Um, and together they just kind of feel like night and day a little bit. So. How much did Ursula do and what was his relationship like with, with Tillich? Um, well, yes,
2: if we're giving people their due, really Ursula could very well be listed as a co-author in pretty much all those books from about 1950 on. certainly from 1952 or anything you wrote from that point. But really, I would say about 1944 on She's Got a Strong Hand, um, an editorial hand, um, as I say, even with the second volume of Nature and Destiny, her, it, she, she's a strong uh, hand there also, um, you know, um, Henry Sloan Goffin as well helped uh, with that one. Um, now part of the issue with, you know, Ursula herself was, uh, had, a, had a real polemical wit. Uh, so she wasn't always the best one to sort of pull him back from that one. Cause she had anything, she kind of fed it, uh, <laughs> uh his, and his tendency to kind of skewer people. And yet she did have more of a sense of how it read on the page. She had, I think even more of a sense of just what I've dealt with my whole career with, with students who just, you know, they, they read that in them, They're just appalled. Right. And that this is a theologian. Um, and, um, and you have a hard time just even getting past that. Uh, that how, if this guy's, you know, a humble theologian, how is it that he skewers people and talks about them, you know, the way that he does. Um, but um, she is his enabler and his, she's his best critic um, and helps him write and sometimes, sometimes when things get improved on a second or third draft, that's always showing the hand of Ursula. Um, and uh, cause she's just a better writer than he is. So, so, you know, all that and more, I mean, once we're, once 52, once we've had the stroke, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, he, he, was, he was violently ill and, um, mm-hmm. and depressed and just literally, she's literally his caretaker. Um, and then anything that he gets out by then, there's just nothing that he's even capable of doing beyond that point, and including, you know, just even getting ready to teach his classes at Union because he didn't, didn't retire until 1960. All of that is just, just literally impossible. Uh, without Ursula, and that's why she's still carrying out her day job, you know, at Barnard. Um, so he he could have, he could have been more, you know. Really, her name should be on a lot, a lot of what we have um, with regard to that. Um, Tillich, yeah. Take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> um, firstly, um, there's an enormous debt here. I mean, Niebuhr helped to save Tillich's life. Yeah. Uh, and Tillich is able to show gratitude that he will say he will call Reini my savior. Right. He mm-hmm. will say the son of this sort of thing. There's always this undertow because Tillich has trouble showing gratitude and giving proper due to anyone around, him, including this whole group of enablers. I mean, we just wouldn't have even known about Tillich with all these people who just made Tillich's cause their own and helped him. With American politics and dealing with his day-to-day tasks and and getting his books out there and helping him even do so. And even union, forcing him to learn how to give a sermon. Uh, you know, Tillich wouldn't have done that, except all those sermons he kind of was, you know, guilt-shamed into giving at James Chapel. And now he, you know, he becomes good at that. Uh, and that's where we get all these books of sermons out of what he did at James Um Chapel. He's a different kind of person, he is a product. And as you know, after once he's through the war of Bohemian culture um, and his life is a kind of scandal so far as theology and seminary world are concerned. And he feels that he doesn't want to come to Union. He never did. Uh, he'd have been thrilled if the Columbia philosophy department would have taken him except that, of course they're never gonna take him. Columbia philosophy department is a whole different kind of thing uh, where German idealism just never happened. It's just not something they regard as true philosophy um and so um and so he ends up being stuck at this seminary uh that yeah that saved him um and you got a faculty that doesn't really think of what he does as being christian theology um and and that's even with most of them not even knowing about this secret world he has with all of his you know all of his women uh that he's involved with because he just carried on the way same way he was in germany um and of course the you know, the scandal issue there is just that Hannah was the same way in Germany. They actually had a troika for a while uh, in Germany. But then when, when they came to this country, Tillich just just resumed the way he was. Yeah. Cafe society and not uh, taking women home or taking them elsewhere, I can't bring them home anymore. But, uh, uh, and, and whereas Hannah was just kind of stranded. She never really learned the language, never really became an American. And just felt stranded and lonely, and then, of course, then become, did become very bitter about the way you know he just he just carried on and felt abandoned by him, and finally, years later, she wrote about it in a book called From Time to Time. So oh, wow, I didn't know uh, that. So everyone learned about it uh, in in you know from from her book. Um, so uh, as Niebuhr learns all of this, this is the issue that then comes between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it is a scandal, you know, to, 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 to Niebuhr, um, to learn what, you know, this, this side of, um, Tillich's life. And Tillich does say certain things about Niebuhr that are kind of patronizing, you know, to say, oh, man of tremendous abilities and tremendous repressions, right? (laughs) Uh, To him, that's, that's very insulting, right? Because Tillich is, you know, he's not, he has, he's got all this psychoanalysis in him and, um, He's, he's very keen to analyze other people. Not not so much himself. He never under <laughs> analysis himself. Because as he, he would say, I'm afraid that if I would have my demons, you know, would be analyzed, I would also lose my angels, which is classic rationalization oh. uh, of, uh, you know, that's so so telichian. Um, But they did in the years that they were together, while this is coming between them, uh, and it, de- it is very much an issue between them. Huh. Um, they... Their students, the students they had in common, did not know it. Um, They were very professional in the way they dealt with it. They didn't, and then of course the crucial thing is, they didn't enlist their students in this conflict that actually existed between them. Uh, That's where it gets bad at a school when, you know, now you're letting the students in, and now they have you're making them deal with this issue between them, and they they did not do that. So there were people, there were people who studied. Under Tillich and Niebuhr during the glory days of Union, who only learned about some of this stuff years later, you know, uh when they heard about it through the rumor mill, or later, of course, much later, this 19, not till 1975, when you know, when Hannah wrote the book. I mean, it's all totally out there uh when Hannah wrote the book. And then other books were written. Rollo May wrote one in defense of Tillich and so on. So more of this literature sort of came out. Um, but
1: this it was always an issue. Can um, we could we say that? Uh, this was maybe part of the reason he left for Harvard? Well, no, Tillich reached retirement age in 1955. Oh, okay, gotcha. Uh,
2: union had a pretty strict policy. You know, you're retired at 65. Uh, we're done with you. Uh, and, um, and, you know, so he, then he went to Harvard, and that's when he became spectacularly famous. Hmm. Uh, it's those five years at Harvard where he's on the cover of time, and, and uh, just his fame just went to a, just exploded to another Whole other level, hmm. um, uh, while he was there, um, and then of course later he finished his career at Chicago. Now he always he has this regret that you know, um, you know Union it's the Methodist man system it still is, you know we're upwards of two thirds of your salary is just the ostensible rental value of that apartment uh, that they give you so you get to the end of your your career you have no savings you have no home you have no anything, um, and so. Um, and so there's a long history of union professors getting to the end, and you know they they have a hard time. They end up having to go off somewhere else, to, you know, still teach somewhere. And that did happen to Tillich. Um, yeah. And of course, for Niebuhr, he just he tried because you know he was he was not well off at the end either. And and Ursula was bitter about this for years after. You know, he resented um, Niebuhr, and he uh, resented union, and even resented at his retirement party in 1960. What did they announce? Oh, we found, founded a, a, a Reinhold Niebuhr chair, right? We're going <laughs> to use his name to make money for union off a chair. And meanwhile, he's still in the poorhouse here from <laughs> her standpoint. She was angry oh, as wow. um, In Tillich's case, he just went off to Harvard. And of course, in Harvard, you're a whole other pay scale. Um, and so he ended up you know, doing much better. Meanwhile, it's at Harvard when he became just this incredibly famous uh, figure, no theologian ever remotely as famous as Dillick was during that that period, and then from there he just went off to Chicago um, to finish his career. So that's how that you know that whole business sort of played out.
3: Oh, that's
2: uh, past. Um and he was thrilled uh, to go to Harvard. And once he went there, he didn't go to church anymore either, except of I'm course sure. when he was preaching. Uh,
1: <laughs> that's uh, Dillick. Of course. Uh, Aaron or Zach, do you guys have any more questions?
0: Oh, yeah. I was just going to ask like a personal question, you know, related to Niebuhr, you know, because obviously, you know, I I could ask you how, the question really is just how has Niebuhr influenced you like personally, you know, like the way that you personally look at the world? Because I mean, as a historian, you, I mean, you're going through, I mean, these books are huge. You've gone through a lot of theologians. And so, I mean, I just generally wanted to ask you like. Do you see yourself as kind of like, okay, like I've kind of transited my Niebuhr days and I've kind of moved to a different place or does he kind of still inform the way you do theology today?
2: Oh, Niebuhr is very, very much in my head and heart. I, um, for much of my career, it was just second nature to always think with any regard to any kind of issue or just what does it look like from a neighborian, you know, standpoint. Um, And, uh, of course, for my generation, just to even learn that there's such a thing as social ethics, that's what social ethics is. It's whatever it is that Niebuhr did. Uh, And, of course, from from the generation before me, that's the answer to that question. That's the shorthand. That's the shorthand answer. What is social ethics? It's what Reinhold Niebuhr does. Uh, I mean, whatever it is, that's sort of that odd. that's not a conflation of theology and political theory and ethical something and... You know, a practical application. Allow whatever this stew of things uh, is that is called the field of social ethics. Well, that just Niebuhr um, is the exemplar of it, including yes, the fact you know Niebuhr is just so deeply political. I mean, Niebuhr got up every morning asking himself, "What should the federal government be doing about this or that?" Well, that's a certain kind of orientation. Uh, as you know, there's a lot of Christianity that feels that would that's that would say that's that's a pretty strange orientation for a Christian theologian or, a, or it's an improper one or whatever. Right. Um, but to me, I didn't really grow up Christian anyway. So just coming into all of this kind of learning all of it, the fact that the social ethicist has that sort of orientation is, is that political for all that he criticizes the social gospel. He's that much of a social gospel or that is a really, really deep one. Right. Mm. Um, that, you know, that, was formative for me, like like few other things. Um, I mean, there there are a couple of things that are even more formative for me. Mo- just the sheer personal witness, the being of Martin Luther King Jr. That's hmm. that's how I even realized there's some world beyond this lower class, semi rural world that I live in. That when I first, when the world sort of crashed through to me growing up it's martin luther king and the civil rights movement including yeah. how religion is being represented there uh because i didn't grow up you know really much religion um so that's what brings me into all this um but yeah martin luther yeah. king brought me into learning there there's some there's somebody called reinhold niebuhr um to learn about um uh, and then in college yeah it's
0: it's super interesting you see that because that's um, like a similar thing that really drew me to niebuhr was like you know coming up in a a background that emphasizes sin so much like you know sin is such a central tenet of like conservative theology but then to get to this point where we don't really do anything about it in society you know what i mean like we talk about it a lot in a personal pietistic way but man nothing spoke to me more than leaves uh, the leaves from the uh, notebook of a tamed cynic i mean just like just he just crushes the sentimentality of pietism you know i mean Just like these like we have all these lofty ideas about how we should interact with, um, sin in our own personal life. But when it's in society, we just kind of, eh, that's a, that's another issue. That's another realm. And it was like, man, I'm so like convicted. It's like, what if I, you know, because they always, they always taught us like, don't, you know, don't preach politics from the pulpit. Don't preach politics from the pulpit. You know, that, that's like a, like a tenet I would say of what they, and I was like, man, that's just so wrong. Like, how can you believe in the reality of sin but then not say anything about the, the giant injustices that are around you in society. And I just was like, it was like, opened my eyes all of a sudden. I was like, oh, my gosh, like what I've been doing. So I just I thought it was interesting you.
2: Of course, this yeah. is the very thing that Walter Rauschenbusch is convicted about rails against. Uh, it's in all of his books saying this very thing. Um, And then, but meanwhile, in the course of writing all these books, Christianity and the Social Crisis and Christianizing the the Social Order and getting to his last book, it's not until the very end of his career that he writes a book called The Theology of the Social Gospel. And it's only at the very end he even makes this concession to social gospel because everyone else is using this term. And he's been holding out against it till now because he just says, No, I don't want to even concede that there's some other gospel. It's just wrong that something else has been called the gospel all these years. Uh, And so, yeah, this is the social gospel when we say it's just trivializing, it's non-Christian, it's just six other kinds of wrong things to not see the social consequences of sin, to not deal with the socio-political consequences of sin. We're just trivializing sin itself when we do that, even though that's what most of Christianity has done. And to assign a name to this critique and say, oh, that's the social gospel. He held, Rauschenbusch held out against that, the social gospeler until the very end. And it's just then finally a convention. He says, well, no, pointless to hold out anymore. The whole world calls at this now. Um, And so, so will I, Um, but that basics or a gospel feel about this, about just what it means to take sin seriously no, that's in Rauschenbusch. Um, Yeah. Of course, it's certainly, it's there in Niebuhr with a vengeance.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, the greatest, the greatest example, one that I think it comes to my mind all the time is there's a, the, he goes to this church, I think it's in California, and they're like talking about, or I think it was California, I can't quite remember, but it's in Lee's Notebook at Dame Stenning. And they're talking about women smoking cigarettes and whether or not women should smoke cigarettes or not smoke cigarettes. And he was just like sitting there like, why are we wasting our time focusing on this this stupid trivial thing you know like there's such bigger issues around us and we we're sitting here talking about whether women should smoke cigarettes and so yeah
3: okay. aaron did you have any uh yeah I, I don't know if this has put you on the spot and i do apologize for this but if stanley howard right here right <laughs> now <laughs> i'm looking you dead in the eyes and you had to tell him exactly why Niebuhr is important for theology today and why people should give him a listen or read a book from uh, for him. How would you condense that in a minute statement? Great question.
2: Uh, well, yeah, I don't know if I could do it in 60 seconds. Um, <laughs> firstly, I would say you got Stanley is... I'm trying is to help
3: you condense me. your book down a bit more, you know? So, just... yeah.
2: No, um, firstly, Stanley is a dear friend um, to yeah. me. Uh, he is one of those people I've thought with and through and often against, uh, you know, for um, much of my career. Um, and uh, Stanley is someone who has the gift of friendship. Um, mm. And um, and we do. I mean, wh- one reason he's just so much in my head is that we, you know, we we do engagement we we are engaging Niebuhr for quite similar reasons. And yes, we come out differently. I mean, Stanley, I think Stanley would have would have become a, a really important theologian anyway, had he never become a pacifist. Um, because he already had that sort of narrative, uh, communitarian, virtue-oriented kind of uh, argument that he's already developing his book, you know, Truthfulness and Tragedy and so on in his early career. So you know, we all would have known about Stanley anyway. Um, but once, you know, Yoder convinces him that, you know, Christian pacifism is true, and once he kind of tries it on, at that point, now, Stanley's got a whole other lens. He's just like, everything now is just, is a new question to him. Like, what it would mean to even think about this issue, that I was taught a certain way in seminary, uh, and got a lot, or had a lot of Reinhold Niebuhr in my head through seminary, that now, if I'm going to try to live through, live out Christian pacifism, well, now it looks differently. Well, how would it come out? And I think that that's just that's the key to to Stanley um, is that then people who had previously been his heroes now have to come out, you know, not so well uh, anymore um, because uh, because this so he has this kind of Yoder like um, you know Christian pacifist argument always on a Stanley's own in inimitable personal you know terms uh, mm-hmm. he isn't just Yoder, um, but. Um, that are, that he's always working out. And that's why these books are so brilliant. And he's working it out himself. Um, and uh, no, these works are, you know, in the years when I'm starting to make, make an intervention in the field, Stanley was just by far the, the figure um, in Christian social ethics and for, for good reason. Um, incidentally, so the, about the 40 page version of that um, is coming out. It's just coming out this week in a book, uh, Harlan, Beckley and Doug Otadi and uh, Bill Schweikert have a book out that just come out um, where a bunch of us are sort of weighing in on this this kind of. Thing. I think it's called Boundaries and something else, but it's mm. it's the it's the the issue is advocacy in Christian social ethics. You know, should Christian social ethicists be advocates, uh, and if so, mm. how should they do it? It, do we have enough of it not is it too much? Are there ways to do advocacy that are wrong? so on um, that's the sort of organizing theme um, in this uh, volume. And I do know my my piece and Stanley's are bookends in this book. I haven't read Stanley's piece yet, but I, I am aware that that's that's how they um, they put it through. Um, so I think it, there will be a kind of state of the field so far as that kind of issue. Um, hmm.
1: so. Well, we're going to have to read that and discuss it on here, on this podcast. Um, All right. Well, that about does it for today's episode of the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast. We want to thank again, um, Dr. Dorian, for giving uh, so generously of his time um, and wisdom today. Uh, Make sure to like and subscribe. Give us a good rating if you're enjoying it. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Niebuhr for uh, news and updates. Until next time, everyone. Peace out and stay safe out there.